This is the Podium Finish Live from Austin, Texas, and various points across the country. Here's your host, Rob Tiansen. And a good, good day to everyone out there listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you're listening to. Welcome to another edition of the Podium Finish Live. This is episode number 64, and I'm your host, Rob Tiansen. That gentleman is Nathan Solomon, and we are always happy to have all of you racing fans tuning into the world's fastest hour of racing talk. Yes, episode number 64. We're just counting down to episode 100, but we're always happy to get quality episodes for the best fans in all of sports, the motorsports fans. And we have a lot to get to on this edition of TPF Live because this is the post-Richmond free Bristol dirt racetrack weekend. If that was a mouthful, it kind of was. So that's why I'm talking a little bit slower because there's just so much to catch up on on this edition of our show. Now, of course, Nathan is back and refreshed from his experiences and coverage over at Richmond Raceway. So job well done, Nathan. And he got to work alongside a couple of rather new TPFers, if you will, in Mitchell Richmeyer and uh, Trish McCormick. Job well done. And in fact, Trish is in the midst of what should be a four-week stretch of races. So this is race number two of four for her because she's at the Bristol Motor Speedway this weekend with Jazz Sharps. That's why Jazz isn't here because they're going to be traveling over to Bristol this weekend. So ladies behave and don't turn Bristol Motor Speedway into a fishbowl for a Bass Pro Shop um, tournament that Kyle Petty's talked about in the past with Darlington in 1995. And then, of course, Trish and Jazz will be covering Martinsville. And then Trish will be part of the Talladega team, along with Stephen Conley and Riley Thompson. And at the end of the month, that fell up above my head, which you guys can't see. Nathan's going to be back, and he'll be back with the team that he worked with most of the time last year with Sam Drace. And, of course, our captain in photography, Josh Jones. So TPF is pretty much everywhere. We're going to try to keep it that way, especially as we try to finalize our lineup for May and for June. And uh, there's a certain race in July that yours truly is trying to get to seeing if it's logistical. I won't give that one away unless you know where I came from. Um, And don't say my mom because that's a really dirty joke. We're not going to do that today. Anyways, let's bring in Nathan because I'm sure he's got a lot of riveting tales and stories to share with you folks about Richmond. So Nathan, welcome back. Glad you made it back in one piece and hope you are doing well. Yeah, thank you. You said I'm I'm back and refreshed. Let's just say I'm back. I don't know if I'm refreshed yet because I am exhausted. <laughs> but, um, no, it was it was a good weekend at Richmond. Glad to get to the track for the first time. Definitely a um, couple more features to come, hopefully next week from Richmond. So I Everybody better keep their eyes peeled on that. Um, but no, it was, it was good. There's a lot of storylines really across both races. We'll dive into some of those here in, in just a minute. But um, I think overall, I think it was, at least for the cup side, I think it was the best cup race we've seen at Richmond in, in quite some time. I know that's been a, a track that's been pretty hated amongst NASCAR fans the last five or six years. But I thought just the way that the cautions fell with the new short track package, I thought we saw a really good race. So I'm happy I was able to witness it and ready to discuss it. Yes, you did see an excellent Richmond race because for once we saw a lot of passing. In fact, the most amount of passes in the loop data era, which dates back to 2005, 
But you, you don't need a NASCAR statistic to tell you all of that because if you watch the race on Sunday, whether you're at the racetrack like Nathan or you were covering it remotely like me, uh, it was pretty evident that this new package was the was a shing. I can't swear. Well, you know what word I was going to say, folks. It was the it was the deal for Richmond. Incredible action. Um, and if it wasn't more evident about passing, how about the fact that Chandler Smith qualified 37th shotgun in the field and he won the finishing 17th in his cup debut. So that's a testament to showing how you can definitely make passes at this racetrack and still make something of a good day. Uh, even if you're a cup rookie like Chandler. So congrats to him on that great uh, debut. Uh, and if you haven't seen the story on TPF, check it out. Nathan got the audio uh, and video from that weekend. And I was able to make it into a story about Chandler's Richmond race weekend. So job well done on that. And of course, on the other stuff that you've worked on that we'll have here throughout the next couple or several weeks, rather, here on TPF Live. Did I mention our hot seat guest yet, folks? No, I didn't. There's a good reason behind that. Well, as you know, NASCAR is celebrating its 75th anniversary. And in these next several weeks, of course, they're going to be revealing the next 25 to join the all-time 75 greatest drivers in NASCAR history, if you will. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see which current crop will make that list. And those in the past who may have not been considered back in 1998 to be on this year's list. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to seeing if NASCAR has thought it over uh, in terms of the industry as to who should be on there. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a part of that panel. So if I were to give any insights, it's all just opinions. But I will say that the guest for tonight is among those drivers who made the 50 greatest drivers list. And he's on this year's 75 greatest drivers list. And I did mention it last week, but I'm excited about it anyways. Jeff Gordon is here today. Well, not literally here because we're, of course, doing this all remotely. But uh, I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago in Austin, Texas uh, during the NASCAR Coda race weekend. So Jeff is stopping by. Um, this was actually done in person. So this is a lot more, I guess you could say, more personable. Um, and I'll explain why it's such a special interview. It differs from the one that you guys heard a couple of weeks ago. But this one's going to be fun. So it's a treat for you guys and girls who have been longtime NASCAR fans. So stay tuned to that. Now, before we get into podium perspectives and talk about Richmond, get ahead, get a look ahead at the action at the Bristol Dirt Racetrack. Let's just say good to see Dean Thompson's okay. It looks like he'll be racing this weekend after that savage crash it had at Texas Motor Speedway. So whoo, and whoo, that he's okay. Um, and oh, I forgot to say Dylan Nadwadney and Aaron Brink. Great job, guys. Awesome photographs from Texas Motor Speedway. Still the best intermediate racetrack in America, but of course, I'm just going to just uh, say that to Nathan's displeasure. But before we get to podium perspectives, let's hear from our advertising sponsors in SpoilerDieCast.com. Hey, race fans. Are you in hunt for the latest and greatest in NASCAR collectibles from Lionel Racing or sprint cars from Acme Diecast? Head on over to SpoilerDieCast.com They've got a lot of offerings that you cannot find anywhere else, as well as some hidden gems that you may have lost during your childhood. And if you spend $20 or more on in-stock items or pre-order items, you can save 5% off your order and get free shipping if you use promo code TPF. 
Recently, I bought myself about five diecast cars from the Lionel Racing Collection, and it was going to be about $50, but with my promo code of TPF, not only did I get free shipping, but I saved about $2.50. Pretty awesome, I'd say. And my order arrived within three business days, which, honestly, that's pretty fast given how you can wait around with snail mail all day long, but hey, Evan and his team got it done, and I'm a pretty happy diecast collector right now, so head on over to spoilerdiecast.com, and if you spend $20 or more on in-stock items or pre-order items, use promo code TPF, and you'll be in victory lane knowing that you save some money and look like a pretty awesome driver or car owner in your own right. SpoilerDiecast.com to be in victory lane right now with promo code TPF. And SpoilerDiecast.com is going to get a lot of shipments these next several weeks because it's 2023 NASCAR Cup Series season time, folks. That means you don't have to worry about trying to get duplicates of 2022 diecast cars. You can finally get your hands on some 2023s. Do I sound like a car dealership salesman? Yes, I do. I'm sorry that I do, but I love getting diecast cars. They're great mementos, great treats for your friends and family. And if you need to pick me up for the week, Evan and his team can make it happen. Uh, so you can get pre-orders, you can get in-stock items. If you spend $20 or more on either of those, just use promo code TPF. You'll get 5% off of your order. And by the way, free shipping. Now, who doesn't like free shipping? Uh, I would suspect that it's the person who does your tax accounting. I don't know. But go ahead and go to spoilerdiecast.com. Have a good old time. But uh, when you're doing the shopping, stick around here on TPF Live because right now Nathan and I are about to dive into Podium Perspectives. Now, we are recording on Thursday night, which is actually a good evening to actually do this show because my goodness gracious, do we have a lot of new stories and topics to get to. Now, I think we should talk about this year's NASCAR All-Star Race, which of course will be held at North Wilkesboro Speedway. You'll have to forgive me, folks. I need to look at some notes because this is a rather interesting format. Now, not as complicated as in several years past with the NASCAR All-Star Race format, but here's how this is going to work out when we get to the weekend of May 19th through the 21st. So on Friday, we'll have practice. And then qualifying will be the pit crew challenge. For you folks who cover or watch NASCAR rather during the mid 2000s, you may remember a little pit crew competition that was held uh, in the Time Warner Center or basically where the Charlotte Bobcats, now Charlotte Hornets, play. Well, they used to have a competition around this time of the season. Well, now that's going to be basically deciding the starting grid for the All Star Heat races that will be held on Saturday. Now, on Saturday, of course, we still have our Tyson's NASCAR Truck Series race, and then we have two All-Star Heat races. Now, the Heat races will be 60 laps each, kind of like the duels of Daytona. The first race decides the inside row. The second race decides the outside row. And then we get to the All-Star Open, which will, of course, be a 100-lap event with a competition break scheduled on and around lap 40. The top two finishers will go on to the all-star race. And then, of course, you at home can vote to see if your favorite who didn't make it into the top two can make the all-star race itself. So 
with that, we also have the All-Star Race field, which will consist of winners this season and last year in the NASCAR Cup Series in terms of points-paying race winners. And then, of course, we have past All-Star Race winners and NASCAR Cup Series championship drivers. Then, of course, the All-Star Open Top 2 field finishers, and then the NASCAR Fan Vote winner. Now, the most exciting part is I don't have to tell you we've got four segments and so many gimmicks because for once in our lifetime, folks, once in our lifetime, let me tell you how excited I am that we have an all-star race format, that it only consists of two stages or segments. How awesome is that? Now, we know the race will be 200 laps total, and we will have a competition break on or around lap 100. And the interesting thing here, folks, is that caution laps will count. Thank Jesus Christ about that. And I'm sorry to offend our Christian listeners when I say that. I am just so excited that we have an all-star race format that it actually makes sense. I'm excited. I wish I could be there. We will have some people there. Um, I will not reveal that lineup just yet, but I will say that soon. If I seem like I'm shilling about it, I'm not. I don't even get paid by NASCAR to say all these things. I am just genuinely stoked. So now that you heard my excitement about this, Nathan, what do you think about this year's all-star race format? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I agree. I think it's about time that they finally do something that's not just like super gimmicky. Like in previous years, the drivers couldn't even follow it. Like they're just getting told, all right, just go up there and all right, this is where we're restarting and go to here. And if you get up to here, this happens. So very simple. People can follow it. Um, It's a three-day show. We have basically something different every single day. You know, we got practice and we have the pit crew challenge Friday, which is great. And I didn't really think about them maybe instituting some sort of heat races, but I'm really glad they did. I think it's going to add um, an, another aspect to the weekend that um, you don't necessarily think of. So the the, we, the the race itself is, you know, 200 laps, but then you also have the heat races too, which are, are going to be another, uh, an, a, really another, another part of it that, Again, won't count to like the actual lap total, but uh, it's just it's more competitive racing. So we're going to see a ton of action on this track throughout the entirety of the week. Um, obviously, we'll have the truck race on Saturday. That's going to be a points race. That'll be on Big Fox. And then we'll have late model races throughout the week. We'll have modified races throughout the week. So it's going to be a jam-packed week. Um, I don't even know where like the modified late model races are airing on, but I'm going to need to get it figured out because I think I'm going to have to get some uh, some pay-per-view for it because it's going to be a super awesome week. Um you know, I I think the, I want to say the Cars Tour will be there. Uh, I know they put on a good show. I really would love to check out a Cars Tour race one time. And um, so we're going to have a little bit of everything that week. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun um, and hopefully culminating with a, a great Cup Series All-Star race on Sunday. And I would love if this if the All-Star race at North Wilkesboro was just a one year thing in the sense of in 2024, uh, they go to North Wilkesboro for points paying race. That would be so freaking awesome. And then they could like do something different again for the all-star race. Like if you're going to do like put, I don't know, put the dirt race for the all-star race. I don't really know. But um, I, I, as happy as I, I am to have North Wilkesboro as the all-star race, I would kill to have this race, the points paying race. So the truck series can do it. Cup can too. Um, hopefully all-star at uh, North Wilkesboro will switch to points in 2024, but it's, it's going to be a blast. You said exactly what I was thinking uh, there, Nathan. I would love to see NASCAR racing come back to North Wilkesboro as a points-paying race. We haven't had that since 1996, so I think it's well overdue. And the one thing we haven't touched upon about what North Wilkesboro is that this is a very abrasive track surface. Now, you witnessed that 
at Richmond and you got to see just how important tires were and just how the racing became very interesting with this new package. So I might have a little bit of hope with the short track package when North Wilkesboro's All-Series Weekend hits. Um, you know, that could be the return of Chase Elliott's uh, number nine ride. I don't know. I'm not trying to speculate, but if he's healing and he's feeling good, uh, you Chase Elliott fans have a reason to go to the North Wilkesboro Speedway or just watch it on TV and see your guy back in that number nine car. Although the guy who's substituting for him this recent weeks, he's not too bad either. Josh Berry, that is. Um, we'll talk about him a little bit later, but man, this all-star race weekend is going to be super, super awesome. I'm just waiting to get word, folks, if we have two people who will be approved for that. So once I know that they are, I will make that announcement on the show to let you know who our two individuals will be. Um, but I will say that they are two rather hardworking individuals. Not that Nathan and I are not, but uh, in the photography side, they definitely get the job done. So stay tuned for that. And fingers crossed that we get both of our folks there uh, for the All-Star Race. Now let's talk about more crazy stuff. The penalties. Penalties, penalties, and more penalties. So, of course, as you folks know, after the Phoenix race weekend, NASCAR docked 100 points each to the four Hendrick Motorsports teams of Kyle Larson, number five, number 24 of William Byron, then number 48 of Alex Bowman, and then technically the number nine ride, not driven by Chase Elliott, but of course, Josh Berry, because Josh Berry doesn't drive in the Cup Series for points. He didn't get anything deducted from him, but the car owner points were. They were gone for all four, but Bowman, Byron, and Larson all lost 100 driver points. Now, it was announced late last week that they rescinded the points penalty, but the National Motorsports Appeal Board was like, yeah, you guys didn't do your things correctly, but here's your points back. Here you go. And that kind of drew the ire of quite a few folks, I will say. Um, lots of interesting reactions that Nathan got to hear at Richmond about it, namely with Kyle Busch and other drivers speaking up about that. Did you think that was all the craziness, folks, about penalties? No, that's not it. Now, we know for a fact that College Racing tried to appeal their penalty, and that penalty was upheld, essentially, although the National Motorsports board basically was like, yeah, you know what? You didn't do things right, but we're going to rescind your points penalty from 100 to 75. Although Chris Rice did announce on Wednesday that they're going to take it up to the final appeals step on that. So stay tuned for that. We know that Denny Hamlin on his podcast said some stuff about why he wrecked Ross Chastain. NASCAR was like, cool beans. We listened to your podcast, probably downloaded it. And oh, by the way, we're docking you 25 points and we're fining you $50,000. Hamlin tried to appeal that penalty. It was upheld. And as of this recording, it was it remains to be seen if he's going to take it up to the final step for the appeals process. Which brings us to Thursday night, Nathan, because Alex Bowman and William Byron, for the second time in two months, they have been penalized yet again. And this is due to the fact that these were the two random picks um, after the race and the number 48 and 24 teams were both docked 60 points and each rather and their interim crew chiefs will be suspended for the next two race weekends but per fox nascar's ball this will be effective next week since it was such a late penalty 
uh, this case. So it's kind of a moot point because the regular crew chiefs come back next week, but we know for a fact they were docked 60 points each and they were fined $75,000 and it was due to a greenhouse violation. And I don't mean the kind for your plants, folks, because if they were doing that, that's quite nice of NASC, those two teams to do that for the environment. Anyways, and then we'll also too, KVM trucks, they also um, were penalized after the Texas race weekend for some mechanical situations. So Nathan, I think I said a mouthful there. Well, you know, I'm sure you've analyzed a little bit of what happened today alone. I mean, what's your opinion on all of this? So I'll start in order here. I'll start with, <laughs> the, with, with the Hendrick deal um, from Phoenix. I think it's personally, I, I, I think it's completely wrong for them to give them their points back. Basically, the National Motorsports Appeals Panel uh, recognized the fact that, that they modified the parts, the single source parts, which, well, is against the rules. It, it's been, you know, stated countless times, don't mess with the parts. They acknowledge that they messed with them, but decided to give them the points back anyway, which is really the only thing that matters. Um, the crew chief suspensions mean nothing. Um, the fines really don't mean much because uh, the pockets of Hendrick Motorsports are extremely deep. So $100,000 for each race team means nothing. And going back to the crew chief thing, I, I, the crew chief deal, I saw something um, Auto, Week, uh, Auto Week reported today that, um, that the Hendrick, uh, at least uh, Cliff Daniels, um, was on site on, on Sunday and essentially calling shots from an undisclosed location at Richmond Raceway. So essentially the crew chiefs, um, they don't, they're basically, they're, they're allowed at the track, but where they're not allowed is anywhere that requires a credential. So they can technically like sit in the stands or sit in a suite or sit in a van off the back straightaway and call shots. So, um, my guess is that he was probably up in a suite watching watching the race on Sunday, and maybe the other crew chiefs were as well calling the shots. But um, you know, there's quotes from Cliff Daniels, uh, you know, accepting the fact that he was there on Sunday, and and, and that's on the record with Auto Week. But um, I think it's it's completely BS that that Hendrick is getting their points back. Um, and then going over to Colleague at the same time, um, it's also BS that they're not getting their points back because they essentially committed the same violation as Hendrick Motorsports to a lesser degree. What happened with Hendrick is both of the louvers on each car were taken for colleague. One louver on one car was taken. So that, if that doesn't like one louver, just like if they were going to cheat, they were going to, they would modify both louvers. So um, I think it's completely wrong that, that they didn't get their points back. I mean, it's, there has to be a little bit of consistency there. I, I understand that it's a, a completely different, um, you know, the different people are hearing the case. So in the evidence presented could be different, um, but it's essentially the same violation to a lesser degree and colleague got hit harder from it. So um, don't agree with it either. There either has to be some consistency of, okay, keep them all at a hundred points or keep them all at zero points. And now that's not even be possible anymore because NASCAR just came out with a rules bulletin today um, that, altered how the that or that will alter how the national motorsports appeals panel uh can affect penalties going forward so they they only have to stay within a range of a point range uh based on if it's an l1 and l2 or an l3 penalty um so i think both of those were handled poorly um and then the denny hamlin deal um obviously his his appeal got denied um, I guess not really a surprise there. He admitted to intentionally wrecking somebody and, and I guess manipulating the race. Um, the only difference from what's happened in other times with other drivers that he, well, admitted to it. Um, I think there was, 
there, there were several times, that, well, multiple times last year that let's say Carson Hosovar in the truck series race, he blatantly flat out wrecked somebody, um, didn't necessarily acknowledge it, uh, but it was clear as day that he wrecked somebody like what he did to, I think, John Hunter Nemechek at IRP or, um, you know, manip- manipulating races, like intentionally spinning on the apron at Talladega. Like that happened several times with him. NASCAR did nothing, but uh, penalized Denny Hamlin just because um, he came out on his podcast and said it. And, and I'm a believer of just let the drivers settle things out on the racetrack. Um, and I think Denny Hamlin recognized that in that rivalry with Ross Chastain. Uh, Ross Chastain recognized it. Like after Denny got Ross at Pocono last year, Ross was like, yep, I, I deserved it. Like, I mean, I wrecked him a couple times. He got me back, you know. Um, so let, let the drivers figure things out. They're not harming anybody else out there um besides themselves and but again i, I understand why nascar penalized hamlin i mean there, there's not much they can do there and obviously it seemed like it was a pretty quick hearing um and then today we don't really know a ton of the details about this about the the hendrick deal from that came out today thursday um an l1 penalty versus an l2 it was only obviously the two cards that got taken back to the rd center and i think Everybody had the inclination really starting this morning that something was probably fishy with that because typically the penalty report is released Tuesday or if it's not released Tuesday night, we're kind of told, okay, it'll be released Wednesday. Wednesday comes and goes, we get nothing. So it's like, ooh, I don't know about this. This is kind of uh, kind of suspicious. And I saw some people tweeting some stuff like they may have had some insider knowledge that something happened and then the penalty report comes out uh, and they're obviously uh, obviously penalized. So. I hate the fact that there has to have been so much disciplinary action uh, of late in the NASCAR Cup Series, but uh, at the same time, um, don't don't break the rules, don't um, don't modify the parts. It's it's pretty clear in the rule book. Um, don't mess with the parts in these teams uh, for whatever reason. Well, at least Hendrick this year has not gotten that message. No, I would say they're not even just pushing the envelope. They're kind of just going beyond the envelope at this point. And like I said, before we started recording the podcast, Nathan, if I'm Hendrick Motorsports, I probably would like to stay compliant for the rest of the season, knowing that the random selection after the race is going to probably involve my car. So uh, I know NASCAR teams, it's no secret they will push that gray area. But as we've mentioned in several recordings of the show, the NASCAR Cup Series cars are essentially spec cars now. I mean, there's a little bit of distinguished characters in them, characteristics in them, but they are not your your older brothers or your dad's cup car. These are way different. When creativity was allowed back then, now we're pretty much like, here's the car. This is how it's been manufactured. Now stick to it. The only difference is you can get a little creative with that engine, but stay, you know, stay legal. And essentially, the only difference between each car is the driver and team. Well, differences he's my english on that but um it's interesting to say the least about hendrick's situation and uh definitely does not help their case on social media with some fans who may hold a rather derogatory opinion about them as far as denny though i honestly say that if <laughs> i i don't know why you'd have to have mentioned on your podcast i get you know, it's kind of ironic. His show is called Actions Detrimental, and he committed an action that's detrimental, not only to the sport of NASCAR, but to himself. So that there's a bit of irony in that one. I don't know. Just, uh, <laughs> ooh, boy, oh, boy. And then the, the number 24 and 48 team. Let me tell you, that's a big ramification for William Byron, especially, because he was ranked in the top 
four or top five in the point standings, and he's dropped all the way down to 14th place. Now, thankfully, he's got two victories. But at some point, I'm sure the Hendrick organization, when they meet up next week, they're going to probably have a little heart-to-heart about what's been going on and being like, hey, guys, appreciate that you guys really are committed to winning, but let's try to win races in a more compliant way. Let's not let's not piss off NASCAR too much, shall we? Well, speaking of, you know, Hendrick Motorsports, they are the topic of the next one for topic number three, which will kind of be like a multi-smorgasbord of Richmond talk here because I know Nathan wants to really get into talking about it this week for the show. Now, of course, for the main event for the for Sunday's Toyota Owners 400, it was the first time that Kyle Larson won a race this season. I will personally say it's a surprise that they won at Richmond because of the fact that this track has been a house of horrors for the number five team. Yes, he has a couple of top 10 finishes, but I wouldn't say they were like the most convincing top 10 finishes. And the fact that he was able to win this race, especially after the contact with with, uh, Daniel Suarez just before the end of stage two was incredible to see. Um, And Nathan was able to ask a couple of questions to the race winner, Kyle Larson on last Sunday's post-conference. So let's go hear that right now. Kyle, obviously, you know, you get the points back this week, you get the victory. So how does this change your outlook for the rest of the season? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't really change my outlook for the rest of the season. I, I felt like, yo, yes, we got hit with 100 points and all that. Um, but I felt like my our race cars were really fast all year long. So I knew we were going to have you know, many opportunities to win. And... Um, yeah, we were just uh, able to do that today, and I know we're going to have more opportunities going forward. So it really doesn't – nothing has changed um, you know, my my confidence, I guess, uh, going uh, into – sorry. I seen my buddy, he just blew up bad, so um was checking that out. But, um, yeah, I don't know, just uh, try to keep executing. So, Nathan, I know you were there. You got all the insights from Kyle. He kind of gave you his typical short answer um, about how the the victory doesn't really change anything. But let's be honest, it it's a big game changer. Who who doesn't want to win a race this early on in the season? Yeah, for sure, a big win for them. Um, I don't know. I'm I, I'm I, I guess I'm probably a little bit less surprised than you are. Um, I mean, all the Hendrick cars just had tremendous pace on Sunday at Richmond. Well, I guess who knows if the the penalty had anything <laughs> to do with it or not, or if what they got busted for had anything to do with it or not. But um, I, I think regardless, though, they still had a lot of pace. Um, the five car, the 24 car, they were two of the best cars all day. Obviously, the 24 got wrecked there late and got hit by Bell. Um, and I don't think there's any intention there. I think it's just kind of a racing deal. I know Chastain went three wide and, and Bell originally put the blame on Chastain, um, kind of backed off a little bit after the race, after um, he saw the replay of what had happened, but said a couple interesting things about Chastain. Um, but um, yeah, they had a lot of pace and, and the Toyotas did as well. The 19 was really fast. The 11 was really fast, except um, Denny kind of kept shooting himself in the foot a little bit. He had a couple speeding penalties at a really long pit stop under green too, which was a huge killer for them. Um, the 19, like I mentioned, um, they were probably the fastest outside of the 200 cars. Um, 
except they kind of they, they screwed up the pit strategy early in the race. They took uh, fresh tires in stage one when most others didn't. And then that kind of left them having to put a set of scuff tires on at the end of the race. And they fell outside of the top 10. So um, unfortunate call there for the 19 team. Um, the nine car. Yeah, well, yeah, the nine car had a good finish. I think he was he's definitely the slowest of the of the four um, the 400 cars obviously played that that pit strategy right. Um, the nine, the 38 and the 34, they all kind of ran, ran, ran longer on the pit cycle and they were able to catch a caution there with 20 something to go and, uh, end up restarting the top 10. And I don't know where the 34 finished, but uh, I think McDowell finished sixth, And then of course, Josh Berry finished second, second. Um, so it paid off for those guys. Good to see Josh Berry finish, uh, you know, so well, just his sixth cup race, um, pretty incredible feat there and in his fourth in the new car and with Hendrick Motorsports. But, um, but yeah, I know I'm kind of, kind of jumping around a little bit, but, um, big win for the five team. I know they've been pretty inconsistent there in the past. Like you mentioned, he does have two wins there now. So I guess when the, when the car is good, the driver is usually pretty good too. So um, win number 20 on, on Larson's career. And, you know, he's been up in the mix every single week, just some um, typically cautions just kind of falling at the wrong times for them. So uh, I'd certainly expect that, um, you know, more victories to come for, for the five team. I was going to say for the number five team, I expected their first victory to come this weekend. So kind of a spoiler alert folks as to who I'm going to pick for Sunday's food city dirt race. But um, you know, the fact, like you said, if the car is really good, the driver can typically get the job done. And uh, that's what he needed on Sunday was a good car. Um, and it seemed like once they fixed that fender, he was pretty much lights out um, compared to the rest of the field, except for William Byron and Martin Tricks Jr., which um, there was some rather interesting audio <laughs> that came from Truex's radio between himself and uh, crew chief James Small. If you haven't caught that clip, folks, NASCAR.com has a little bit of that. And uh, let's go hear a little bit of that replay uh, radio banter between Shurex and Crew Chief James Small, because this is an interesting moment. What a nightmare. I know it. Let's survive here. My tires are flat. Sorry, we f***ing hurt ourselves. We were f***ing out of tires. We had that uh, seven-line scuff there. So we're don't understand what you just said, but that was pitiful. Had scuffed tires on there because we hosed ourselves taking that set in stage one. So we'll f*** regardless. Sorry, we f***ed up. You didn't tell me you put scuffs on, so I didn't know what the f*** was wrong, okay? Jesus. There's no point in telling you. We'll f*** either way. And I think this is the other big story that came out of Richmond. I'm, I'm not going to go on the record like Kyle Petty and say that this is the beginning of the end for this team because we've seen Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson bicker at each other and they happened to not break up that bunch for, you know, a handful of years. And they, by the way, didn't win a couple more championships when that happened. But it was pretty evident, like you said, Nathan, that those two were not communicating really well. Um, I mean, this is a tough question to ask. If you're the crew chief and you know your driver needs to be on the assault in the final laps, wouldn't you want to kind of tell him the truth about the situation so he can drive a little bit appropriately knowing he has scuffs versus not knowing what he has? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I get why he didn't like, he didn't want to panic him, but at the same time, yeah, I think you have to be transparent. Um, you know, I, I like the thinking of the strategy call because um, typically these rich and races have these long green flag runs, particularly in the third stage. And we ended up with, I think the most cautions in a Richmond race in, in quite some time, uh, eight cautions. So in, in 
four or five from incident um so yeah then uh, like they stacked up late there at the end he had those i think two in in the last 25 laps or whatever um so that's pretty atypical for a richmond race so i think that was um you know the the thinking by james small to take that extra set of tires earlier on thinking that the race would run green in the third stage or if there's gonna be a caution maybe just be one so um tough for them they even got that extra set of tires from when practice and qualifying got canceled and um still ended up running out so just kind of misplayed things wrong the cautions fell really when they did not need them to and then you know teams like that unfortunately unable to take advantage when you know at the same time you know the nine uh the 34 the 38 they were able to to really take advantage of those late cautions and it's just too bad for Martin Tricks Jr. because I think he would have been a really intriguing winner given the fact that he hasn't won in a couple of years. And in fact, I think his most recent victory was at Richmond. So it's kind of a shame that, you know, he's still sitting there mired out of victory lane like Ryan Blaney. But I I, I certainly think that if James Smalling and Martin Tricks Jr. can, you know, just keep on keeping on, um, it's a matter of time before they'll get back to victory lane in this new next gen car for them. Uh, so Number 19 fan hang in there. I'm sure you'll see your guy back in contention here very shortly. And I think the other big story, we got to talk about it before we get to Bristol talk. How about Josh Berry? I mean, incredible stuff to see the banker. That's what I call him. The banker getting a second place finish. I mean, I love the fact that they were staying out towards the end of the, you know, stage three, maybe not necessarily win, but Hey, you never know. They were towards the front of the field. Maybe they'll get that caution flag. And by golly, they got that caution flag. And a lot of folks may have been thinking, oh, the number 19 just changed two tires. That's how he got out to second place. But uh, lo and behold, you know, the number 19 had an excellent pit stop. And Josh Berry was able to lock a top two finish for that number nine car. And honestly, if he had played his cards right on the restart, who knows? Maybe he could have had a chance to be Kyle Larson, but I think some of the inexperience in the cup car may have cost Josh Berry a chance at the victory. But, um, you know, a lot of folks had a lot of nice things to say about Josh. So let's hear from Josh first, and then we'll hear what Kyle Larson had to say about Josh Berry when Nathan asked him about what it was like to have Josh Berry drive the number nine car this past weekend. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Good I job, think. man. <laughs> Awesome. That must have felt good, huh? Yeah. You fought hard for that one. Thank you. Um, no, I, I, I love the call. Um, you know, we were – I thought we had some good good pace at times. We needed some clean air. And these guys, uh, you know, they thought outside the box, and that's what it takes in these races. You know, I think you, you never know what could happen. If you just do everything – if you do the same that everybody around you does, then you're going to finish with them, you know. And they – you know, they made a bold call, a couple bold calls, you know, one that kept us on the lead lap early in the race, and uh, that one at the end to get us some track position. Pit crew was amazing all day. Just like I said, real real credit to this Napa team. I mean, they did an amazing job. Well, he's he's a extremely good race car driver and, um, you know, a great short track racer. So, um, you know, I think it it's hard for me to follow along when I'm out there racing, but uh, I think due to their track position that they had throughout the race, you, they were on a totally different strategy there at the end, just hoping you to catch a caution. And, and that's ultimately what happened. Um, their team did a great job on pit road and he came out second. And, um, you know, me being a leader, I was, I was nervous cause I hadn't been around him all, all day. Um, I know he's a super good short track racer. Um, 
so yeah, it was. I knew it was gonna be tough, and and thankfully we got clear of him. But um, you know, he's he's done a phenomenal job filling in. I think you know he. It's been nice to have him a part of the debriefs. Um, you know, I feel like he describes his car really well. He seems like he's probably really easy to work with. Um, you know, I'm sure the nine team probably feels he's easy to work with. So um, I've I've enjoyed having him a part of our team. You know, throughout uh, your Chase's injury. So I hope I hope whenever Chase comes back, you know that Josh gets more opportunity going forward and, and good equipment because I mean he is a cup series caliber driver and he's proven it you know just in the few races that he's ran so um, he's very very deserving of, of being in the cup series and you know he's worked extremely hard his whole career to to get these opportunities I mean that's a great feel-good story we don't know what's going to happen to Josh Berry at least in the cup side after Chase Elliott returns you know you got to witness what Josh Berry does in the short track in a cup car. I mean, that had to be pretty, pretty much interesting stuff to see. Yeah, for sure. A great run for him. Um, I think he was kind of like a 15th place car or so um, before that caution, but obviously, you know, like we mentioned, able to kind of uh, run long on that green flag run and catch the caution at the right time. And then obviously able to use that short track experience to um, have a good second restart. The first restart he had wasn't very good. Uh, fortunately for him, kind of got bailed out with the William Byron crash. They were able to kind of re-rack and had a much better uh, uh, launched the second time around and uh, a couple of cars behind him got sacked up. I, I, the, the 20, the one they got, they got kind of bunched up. So that kind of gave the five and the nine, a little bit of a cushion. So nobody was really able to get to um, the nine. I, th- I don't think he really had anything for Kyle Larson without like maybe trying to go in there and wreck him. And obviously he's not going to do that, uh, especially since that's not really even his team uh, or his full-time team, but um, great run for him. And and I think that what, what Kyle Larson said and what William Byron said and uh, what Ross Chastain said and what Jeff Gordon said after the race, I think that's all right. in the fact that it's, it's, it's no longer a, a matter of uh, if Josh Berry has a cup series ride, it's a matter of when, you know, even though he's 32 years old, um, you know, kind of older for, uh, I guess, an up and coming NASCAR uh, national series driver. I think it, it's just a matter of time until uh, he gets a full time ride and, and some com- some competitive equipment because he's really shown that he's belonged and he's really just gotten better and better um, at, in each race. Um, again, we don't really know how much longer he's going to be in the nine car for. They originally said that Chase Elliott will be out for six weeks, and that was about five weeks ago. Um, so I think it, it, it's possible. I, like I, It seems like Bristol would be um, kind of at the, the minimum end of the time that Elliott could miss. So I, I think after this weekend, we're kind of in the window of, all right, maybe any week now Chase is ready to go again. Um, because this is this would be race five for Josh Berry this weekend. And then if... Um, if you add in the Jordan Taylor race as well, that's six. So um, we'll have to see what happens. I'm sure Josh Perry will continue to do a good job if he's in the nine car pass this week. And I know he's pretty good at Martinsville too. So maybe they'll, uh, maybe they'll try to keep him in the car for that one. Well, I would love to see Josh Berry stay in the number nine car for Martinsville, because I think he would easily be one of the first contenders you think of uh, for that race, the blue MU maximum pain relief 400. Yes. 400 laps at Martinsville and it's a daytime race folks. So don't worry. Not a repeat of that cold disaster that we saw last year. But Josh Berry is a treat to watch. I definitely agree with the sentiments of Ross, Kyle, and Jeff that we'll see Raw, you know, Josh Berry race full time in the Cup Series. And it'll be interesting to see exactly if he's manufacturer specific 
or if he's one of those coveted free agent drivers who, if you know Ford or Toyota want to build a program around him, hey, he's he's as good as they get in terms of a an experience, but still relatively young, sort of older, but you know, lots of mileage left in this young man as far as a competitive stock car driver is concerned. That's a lot of Richmond talk, but that's because it was such a great race weekend, and we know that Nathan definitely gave it all, and uh, we look forward to having him back at the racetrack at Dover uh, at the end of this month. Well, now let's actually talk about some winning time here, folks. It's time to think about Bristol Dirt Track Race Weekend, and yes, it's another race weekend where Mother Nature may dominate for a while, but it looks like race day, or race evening rather, on Easter Sunday is going to be pretty fantastic. Cold, but fantastic. Let's talk about who we think will win this weekend's truck and cup races at the Bristol Dirt Racetrack. And hey, Nathan, we haven't even complained about the Bristol Dirt Track race, so that's an amazing thing in itself. But uh, who are you going with with you this weekend? Yeah, so it's kind of weird because obviously a lot of the the dirt track races are going to come to mind. You know, Kyle Larson, um, Chase Briscoe, um, you know, Christopher Bell, any of those guys that you hear about regularly running on dirt, Ricky Stenhouse, Justin Haley. But so far in the two dirt races that we've done at Bristol, two guys that aren't really dirt track racers have won. Uh, Joey Logano won in 2021. Kyle Busch won in 2022. Um, really shouldn't have won in 2022 if Chase Briscoe and Tyler Reddick didn't wreck in the last corner, but a win's a win. Um, so I'm kind of reluctant to pick a dirt track racer on, on Sunday or for really either race, but I am. I'm, I'm going to start with uh, Saturday's truck race. There's a couple of cup drivers in that one. I'll go with Chase Briscoe Saturday. Um, I think he's in, he's in the AM racing truck. Uh, with Ford help, I think maybe some Stuart Haas help as well. So there'll be a lot of resources into that that truck. He'll have a good piece. I'll go with Chase Briscoe um, to win the truck race, and then for Sunday's Cup race, again this is this is wide open. I know that a lot of times you know folks will will want to um, want to pick some of the guys that are good on dirt. So I'll I'll kind of go with I'll go with somebody that is a dirt guy, but it's also a little bit out of the box at the same time. I'll go with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Um, they've definitely had some, some more speed this year. Obviously they won the Daytona 500. They were actually, um, pretty good at Richmond over the weekend. They just had, uh, some brake issues pretty early on in the race. They're spewing brake, brake fluid all over the place. And they had to go to the garage and get that cleaned up for about 15 laps. And that put them out of it. But, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll go chase Briscoe Saturday. I'll go Ricky Stenhouse Jr. On Sunday, but these races on the Bristol dirt are kind of crap straight in my opinion. Uh, and hopefully this will be the last year that we ever do Bristol dirt. And hopefully next spring's race at Bristol will be on the concrete. There we go, folks. That's what we were waiting for Nathan to say. So I know if you listened to our show last year, Nathan had some strong opinions about the Bristol dirt track race weekend. So I was just making sure he felt the same way a year later. Um, and that's no slam to SMI. That's just our honest opinion, which we are able to have. I am in the middle of, on that. Um, let's just sit, wait and see. Personally, I love the concrete Bristol and at the short track package and the cup side of things was as anything as good as we saw in Richmond. We need to have the concrete beast come back for April. But anyways, I digress. For the truck race, you, you know, in the cup race, you have a point, Nathan, that it's kind of, you, you can't take the obvious route because in this case, you know, going through their track racing specialist is not exactly always going to mean that you're going to win either races. But as far as the truck race is concerned, I am going to be a little different 
I will say for the truck race, especially if this driver can get up to speed quickly, I say Jonathan Davenport could win that truck race. Kyle Larson thinks really highly of this driver. And in fact, when I asked him last year at Coda, which driver would he wish to emulate? He told me it was Jonathan Davenport. Now, admittedly, I had no idea who, the, who he was, but when I watched Mav TV and I saw some YouTube clips of Jonathan Davenport, I was impressed. And I think he can take to the cup car and truck, uh, you know, race vehicle pretty well. And it's a stacked field. He's got a lot of great drivers who are going to be itching to get to victory lane. And we will have some drivers who will not make that race, unfortunately. But I say Jonathan Davenport to kind of make things a little bit interesting. But, but you know, if I had to be logical, I say Carson Hosevar could win his second race in a row. And congrats to Carson, by the way, for winning at Texas. Great victory for him. As far as the cup race is concerned, yes, my heart will tell me to pick Kyle Larson because he's a dirt track specialist and he's also pretty much a consistent driver at any kind of racetrack. But if I think outside of the Kyle Larson camp and think really, you know, hmm, who else could be a good contender? Let's think back to last year. Who else really ran well and wasn't a dirt track specialist? I think you have to think about a driver like Brad Kazalowski. I don't know why I'm saying his name. I just, you know, I was really impressed with how he performed at Richmond. And I really like how invested he is with RFK Racing to bring them back from just not another cup team to being a very respected cup team that's competitive. And I loved what I saw out of Richmond, even though they only got a top 10 finish. Who knows? Brad K needs a victory. He hasn't won in a couple of years either. And if there's a way to make a big splash for RFK Racing, why not win the Bristol Dirt Race? Let's consider the fact that in the Concrete Beast, Chris Busher won last year's summer race at Bristol on the concrete. So maybe RFK Racing makes it two in a row at Bristol Motor Speedway. Wild picks, I know. What do you think, folks? Is Nathan right? Am I right? Are we both wrong? Which won't be the first time that's happened. Let us know. Nathan's Twitter handle, of course, is edandsolly02. I'm at Rob Tiongson, and our general Twitter line is, of course, at the Podium Finish. We hope you enjoyed this week's edition of Podium Perspectives, and if you have some suggested topics that you'd like Nathan and I to talk about on a future edition, tweet to us, and hey, if we pick your question, I will personally order you an in-stock item um, from spoilerdiecast.com. That's a 164 skill car, so a little fun little gift right there for your suggestion. Al, I think it is time for us to go into the hot seat. And this is a very awesome and fun edition of the hot seat for this week. Yes, of course, Jeff Gordon is the guest this week but I will give a little short rundown as to what this interview is about. It is about the 25th anniversary of Jeff Gordon's 1998 NASCAR cup series championship season. In my, in my opinion, it's the greatest NASCAR season ever by not only a driver, but a team who had to come off of a really riveting, really amazing 1997 season. And of course, the runner-up season in 96, which they also won 10 races, and the season before that, in which they won seven races to win the championship. 
lots of eyes were on Jeff Gordon in the number 24 team to deliver and get things done. And the beginning of that season wasn't looking so hot. But as the season progressed, so did Jeff Gordon's performance, as well as the number 24 team's big-time aura as becoming the Rainbow Warriors. Now, the questions I asked Jeff at CODA were actually written by my younger self back in 1998. But there's a bit of a twist. Of course, you, you probably shouldn't be asking questions from a 13-year-old version of yourself because uh, as kids, we kind of think pretty highly of those we look up to. So I kind of toned it down a bit, refined the questions, made it more you know, journalist-like, if you will. So I hope you fans, whether you're a Jeff Gordon fan a longtime NASCAR fan or a new NASCAR fan who's never heard about the 1998 season. Consider this a my 75th anniversary gift to all you racing fans out there. So with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy this 15-minute interview with Jeff Gordon from Coda in the hot seat. Well, welcome to another edition of the Podium Finish Live here at the racetrack in Coda. I'm Rob Tiongson. You should know this fellow. This is Jeff Gordon, four-time NASCAR Cup Series champion. And uh, Jeff, we're here to talk about 1998. Oh boy. Why would we talk about 1998? Well, listen, I'm mystery anniversary for you because it's been 25 years. Oh, now you're making me feel old. Well, listen, most of the time I would say to you, um, uh, that's way too far in the past, I can't remember. But 1998 is one of those special years where you know, we won a lot, won the championship. So it's one that I, I, I don't mind talking about going back into the past. I figure as much, because that's what you mentioned in January. So I'm fulfilling that promise with Thank you. Thank you. You got it. We can talk about 1998 every day of the week. Believe it or not, Jeff, I'm going to ask you questions that 13-year-old Rob written on, in Boston, Massachusetts. So are you prepared for this? I'm ready. I think so. All right. Well, he's a little bit grown up now, so... This one's a tough one because in 1998, obviously we began with the Daytona 500. It was Dale Earnhardt's finest hour. It was also a chance for Jeff to you to win your second uh, Daytona 500. I recall you started 29, got to the lead, and then you had some problems at the end. How frustrating was it to come so close to winning your second Daytona 500 in so many years? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the year before winning it and having a 1-2-3 finish for, for uh, Hendrick Motorsports was really special. And so when you when you find your way to victory lane for the first time the Daytona 500, you build uh, confidence in yourself and your decisions you're making, as well as what's happening with the team. So, yeah, we came in 98, I think maybe even more prepared than we did in 97. I don't remember why we didn't qualify well or what happened in the duels to take us uh, you know, that far back in the starting grid, but worked our way forward, had a great car, had a car capable of winning, and and it just wasn't meant to be uh, our day. If I remember, I think, no, that was earlier, um, a few years earlier, we had an engine problem. So I don't know. I don't remember exactly what took us out of contention. I just remember we were really strong that day and didn't win it. Yeah, well, I can tell you it was a cylinder that dropped. Oh, okay, it was an engine problem. So yeah, I, uh, you know, all all of these races run together. But you know, those '90s from '95, uh, I mean, even '93, my rookie year, through those '90s, we just had such a strong package and we're such a strong team. I felt like we could have won every year at, at Daytona for sure. You made up for the 1999, which I'm sure we'll talk about down the road, but hey, the week after, things got better. I mean, it was the first race with the 5-5 five and five rule. Yes. Qualified fourth. But Let's talk about the 5-5 five and five rule. Yeah. Okay, so the 5-5 five and five rule, um, you know, was basically 5-inch spoiler and I think a 5-inch minimum height on the, on the front air dam. And so that was like this 
this, oh, we've got to do this because there were teams thinking there was advantages of, you know, what the Chevy had and, and um, you know, what the 24 car was working with. And so, you know, I feel like this five and five rule was something that was supposed to bring the, the, the field closer together. And I think it only made us better. <laughs> <laughs> kind of counterintuitive, kind of, kind of wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I mean, we were just so so good at that time, you know, just, just meaning in every aspect of looking at aerodynamics of the car. Of course, the Monte Carlo was still very, very strong at that time. Um, I think just, just the details that you still see today that Henry Motorsports works within to make the cars you know, strong each and every weekend on so many different types of racetracks. Um, I was certainly driving with confidence. The pit crew was strong on pit road. Ray and the calls that he was making, the cars that he was bringing, resources, and just everything culminated uh, through those mid-90s and especially 1998. So while Daytona was disappointing, we were happy to get back to the racetrack and make up for, for the loss in Daytona. As I say, Rockingham, that was a comeback because I remembered at one point they dropped like 29th place, almost got lapped, and then like Daryl Waltrip was saying, if Jeff Gordon can't run squat, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if I heard his interview or not, I don't think he did, but you came back and won that race. <laughs> like, how exciting was that for you to go back? Very exciting. I mean, Rockingham was one of my favorite tracks, one of the first tracks I ever competed at in NASCAR, and and you know it was, but it was a difficult track, very abrasive. It was easy to get off on the setup, or if you had an issue on pit road, it was hard to make up for it. So you know, I knew it was one of our best tracks, and and we had some challenges that day, and we were able to overcome them. So to do that on such a challenging, difficult racetrack under those circumstances, I think that's that's what really set the season into motion that we had in 1998. It did for sure. And it seems like in 1998, you were the year, having the year of having four consecutive wins. Which one stands up more to you? Winning four straight Food City 500s at Bristol or four straight Southern 500s at Darlington? Oof. Oh man, you know, they're both real standouts for me because I, I love both of those tracks. They both have their own unique challenges. I think Darlington, maybe stands out more because it is such a prestigious race, Southern 500, um, you know, how difficult that track is to just keep from, from have, you know, to, to keep a car in one piece, you run right next to the wall, really easy to damage the car, let alone managing the tires, uh, easy to have a lot of failures at that track because all the grit and sand on the racetrack. So I, I, if I had to pick one, I would say, the Southern 500 four, four in a row, that, that's impressive. Twice in those years, you beat Jeff Burton for the million dollar bonus. Has he never let you live it down? Uh, it might stick with him. It, for me, I, I got the better end of the deal, so I'm okay <laughs> with it. And you'd have to interview Jeff to ask him, but um, certainly that, that race, with what was on the line, all the build up and hype, um, you know, knowing that that prize had never been won, hadn't been won since Bill Elliott did it, uh, you know, in the 80s. So it, it was certainly something we put a lot of effort into. And then for it to come right down to the end, I brushed the wall, I damaged the car. I was like, oh no, I've given it up. I, I, I've lost this when we had it in control. And then Jeff was coming on strong regardless. Probably what pushed me into making that mistake. And, and, and then we held him off, which was um, really, really good. I will have to follow with JB about yeah. this, but hey. I'm sure he has a much different take than I do. And maybe a little bit colorful metaphors along the way too. Yes. So let me ask you this though. 
I mean, I know the 98 season at the beginning, y'all were trying to figure out, you know, the 5 rules, some intermediate track struggles, but then the Coke 600 was probably the first seminal moment that things turned around. What do you recall about that weekend from winning the pole, then missing the penultimate practice, and then all of a sudden, you were in the mix with those forwards in the end. Well, and this is why, uh, you know, I love catching up with Ray Everham as often as I can and reliving these, these moments in our careers together, but especially in 1998, because he'll probably tell you that as, as upset as he was that I missed that, that practice. Um, and there's a whole other story that goes along with that of, uh, of, of how that really changed. And it was a pitbull, a pitbull moment kind of in the whole season because it re-energized myself, my commitment because I was so disappointed in myself by missing that final practice, showing up to the track, seeing the car damaged because they asked Terry Labonte to get in the car. He cuts a right front tire down. Luckily, didn't damage it worse than he did. And then we'd come and win the race the next day. And and then that that was like, here we go. And, and, and I think what it did was it just made me realize how hard my team works and that they deserve more for me, really. And, and I said, I'm giving, get, gonna give them everything I possibly can. And, and I did, and, and the combination was really, really strong the rest of the year. I would say so, because we'll get into the you know, 18 top five finishes in a row. But I gotta ask you though, your best buddy now, Rusty Wallace, <laughs> he kinda lit a fire in you at Richmond, wouldn't you say? For sure. Uh, is that the? Uh, did he wreck me? Uh, yeah, Richard. Of, of, of course. Uh, <laughs> my buddy Rusty. Um, you know, I think there were several moments uh, that year that lit a fire. You know, one we just talked about. Uh, Nineteen. Uh, you know, at the Coke 600, that final practice. I think not winning the Daytona 500 um, with having such a strong car. That was one of them, also. And then this one, you know, with with Rusty. I mean, Rusty and I had some great battles. Uh, but we were just we were just on this roll where we were putting great runs together, had fast race cars week in and week out. We had a few struggles along the way trying to understand, like you said, the, the five five rule. But um, when when Rusty spun me at Richmond, I was so mad, uh, and, and and I I just wanted to make up for it in every way I possibly could, especially going head to head with Rusty from there on out. So I had I had a vendetta against him, uh, <laughs> probably the rest of my career. He and I laugh about it now, we joke, and we, 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 we get along good. We were not getting along so well that at that time. Yeah, Rusty was saying to me, man, like, he was supposed to be the anointed king of NASCAR, and you kind of ruined his plans. Exactly, and that, and yeah, I love that he shares and is open about that. Um, I, I, I wasn't necessarily planning any of this, Right, it was. I want to be the best driver I could be. I, 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 you know, came along to Hendrick and Chevy at the right time, and we were on a roll. Got Ray Evernham as my crew chief, and all the other things to go along with it. And um, I didn't know that Rusty had this grand plan that he was going to be the successor, you know, uh, to to the the dominance that Earnhardt had built before that, and and that he wanted to own the sport. And and all of a sudden, this kid from California and this this bright colored. Uh, 24 car Hendrick Motorsports had a different plan in place. He certainly did because you certainly drew the ire of the four teams mm -hmm. the rest of that year. I gotta ask a really tough question though because of course you got the four wins in a row during the summer, 18 top fives in a row. Something happened in New Hampshire that I kind of, I will say, pissed off right now. Tire game. What do you recall about Tire Gate? Oh my gosh, it was just air, Jack, just air. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I think. The 24 car had shown that, showed it in our very first win at, at um, 
uh, Charlotte in 1994, where two tire stops and you know just getting track position was was really really important. And I think Ray put a lot of energy into trying to understand how you know spending less time on pit road, whether it was no tires or just two tires, even at a track where most people said you absolutely had to take four, just playing with the air pressures in order to get the, the balance of the car right and, and, and get off pit road faster and, and ahead of others. And that's what we did that day. And it was a brilliant call, brilliant move. And it was one that kind of set a trend for us to do more often, but really caught the attention of our competitors and, and made them think there's no way that we could possibly get beat on two tires, they must be doing something. They must be cheating. And that's when the famous quote from Ray is just air. <laughs> oh, I remember that on RPM tonight. He was just so livid. I thought you handled it pretty well because you were just like, yeah, I'm just gonna here to I'm just here to drive the car. I'll let Ray deal with all the politicking, right? Well, you know, and, and when you're when you're a crew chief and the team taking the car through inspection, you're being criticized, you know, by your competitors. Um, the amount of hard work and, and uh, respect that you have for, for you know, putting great race cars out on the track and the integrity that comes along with it. And when that's tested uh, at any time throughout our careers, even right now, some of the things going on, um, you know, it, it lights a fire underneath you and, and it inspires you to want to go show your competitors just how good you are and, and not that you have some trick up your sleeve. You guys did. You just had a great crew chief, a great pit crew, and a pretty good driver along the way too. So. Hey, everybody's got to play their role and their part well, and, and when everybody does it well together at the same time, magical things happen like what happened in 1998. Oh man, let me tell you, 1998, I thought one of the best things that happened that year was you becoming the first nighttime race winner at Daytona. What do you recall about when NASCAR was like, hey guys, we're going to have a nighttime race at this big track in Daytona, and then in October, which I know was a tough month for you guys, how special was that all for you to win that race and also come over overcome the, the monkey off your back in that moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I love the super speedways. We were strong in super speedways. Um, you know, handling was was uh, a part of super speedway racing back then, and I think that played into our hands a little bit better too. Um, but I just felt like I had learned so much from Dale Earnhardt, the things that he had taught me on these super speedways, that that everyone we went to, we had a shot at winning it. And that race was supposed to happen in July, but there were fires in Florida, so it got postponed to October. But it was a big deal, you know. Back then, there were these moments of going to the Brickyard for the first time in 1994. Um, you know, going to places like Kansas for the first time, or Fontana out in Southern California, or Texas. It was like these moments that were big for the sport and broadening the, the, the appeal. And I think putting lights up in a super speedway was something nobody ever thought could happen or be done. And, and they did it. It was a bold move, but everybody wanted to win that race and, and you know be a part of such a special event under the lights. So even though it didn't happen in July, happy, happy that it happened in October and really happy that we won, won that race. I'll tell you, 13-year-old Rob learned to watch that race. I was like so happy in my house in Malden. I was like, Jeff won the race. I was screaming and my parents were like, shut up, go sleep. <laughs> well, thank you. You've always been a huge fan and been cheering us on for a long time and we certainly appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I got one last question yes, for sir. you before we get to um, wrapping up. You were the road course king in 1998, right? How much did you wish that we had Coda, other road courses in 1988, given how you and Ray unlocked this magic of the 24-part road courses? Yeah, no, I love the road courses. Um, you know, that, that even the street courses happening this year in Chicago, but being here at Coda, um, you know, such such a beautiful facility. I mean, F1 races here, uh, IMSA races here, NASCAR races here, and I, I, I would have loved 
two have been here competing at this racetrack. So a little bit jealous of what these guys get to do here. I, I would think that it would be a track that I would have loved to have attacked and as a team we could have done well at, uh, but I guess we'll just never know. For sure. Well, Jeff, thank you so much, my friend. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Yeah, 1998 was special. All the top fives, the, the second place finishes, and the 13 wins is something I'll never forget. So I always appreciate you uh, one, wanting to relive it. Well, if you ever need a biographer for the greatest season of NASCAR history, just, you know, I'm running in Texas. He said it right there, folks. And when, when that moment comes, you're my guy. Exactly. I won't be as good as, I don't know if I'm good as Joe, but I'll try. I, I think you could do a good job. So we'll, we'll see. Absolutely. <laughs> Jeff Gordon, everyone. And my special thanks to Jeff Gordon for making that interview possible. It wasn't the first time I've interviewed Jeff, so, uh, but it was one of the best ones I've ever had with not just Jeff, but anyone in my journalism journalism career. So thank you again, Jeff, for remembering about wanting to do an interview at CODA. Uh, super cool. And of course, thanks also to John Edwards uh, for making that happen and to Ashley Ennis for being such a great, great help that passed that race weekend. Um, a great friend of ours. And uh, it's good to have good friends like that who make sure that you get your stories, especially when there's last second audibles. So Ashley, keep up the great work. And John, thanks again. And Jeff, really, man, think about that offer I gave to you. I would love to do a book about your 1998 season. If Atlantis King Jones can write about the rich energy saga that fans love, why can't I write a book about the greatest season in NASCAR history, in my opinion, of course, and Jeff's opinion, because he loves the 1988 season. Uh, so that was fun. And Nathan, I'm sure if you ever got the chance to do that kind of thing like that, it would be, it, I'm sure it would be a little treat for you, whether it's NASCAR or any other sport that you cover as well. Uh, but yeah, that's about almost time to wrap up this show. It's a fast one for sure. And next week, of course, we're going to be looking ahead to Martinsville. 400 laps. Now, Nathan and I made the prediction that we would be kind of sad that the race was only 400 laps. Um, the race itself made me glad it was only 400 laps. So uh, before we close out the show, Nathan, what's your thoughts ahead to Martinsville? Well, I'm hoping that the racing will be better now that it's during the day. Um, I think last year was just an unfortunate like combination of like the old short track package and a night race. And also being it was legit 36, 38 degrees out. Not not a recipe for good racing. Like when it's that cold, um, it's just so gripped up. I mean, even when it's like 60 degrees, like it was at Richmond this past week, excuse me. Um, it was it, you know, it's just it's just super gripped up. So I think the warmer that it is. Um, the better things will be. And and just kind of looking at the forecast here, um, it's been really warm on the East Coast lately. I mean, it's been 80 up here in New York, so I'm I'm encouraged that, uh, well, it looks like it's going to continue up into the 80s, up here at least, into next weekend. So that usually means it's pretty pretty warm down there. So hopefully that's a, that's a recipe for some good racing. I think this new short track package is great. I think it'll translate over to Martinsville really well. And between them and, and the Xfinity Series, I think we'll have a, have a good doubleheader weekend there. That's right. The Xfinity Series is going to be back in action next Saturday night. Um, I will not look up the race title name. I'm going to try. I think it's the call 811.com before you dig 250. Something. I nailed it. I'm pretty sure you nailed it. Well, I think they should be sponsoring our show if I remember that name, Nathan. I'm just saying um, that's a, that's one of the longest, most unusual race sponsor names, but it's not as good as if it's what's for dinner 300 at Daytona. 
Um, maybe we'll have a, a special podcast about um, racing names, but if that's the case, I think Jazz would have to be there for that because she'll give her wild imaginations about that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad I nailed that one. But, and I hope we nailed this one because, folks, I think it's time for Nathan and I to wrap up TPF Live episode number 64. So with that, folks, for Nathan Solomon, for Jeff Gordon, I'm your host, Rob Tionson, saying thanks again for tuning in to the Podium Finish Live here on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcasting platform you're listening to for past episodes of TPF Live. Again, check out Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. And you can catch up on the previous 63 episodes that David and I have recorded since October of 2021. But until then, folks, stay safe. Happy Easter. And as I always say, let's go get that checkered flag. Or in this case, let's go get some Easter eggs. And until next time, folks, so long, everyone.